This is Strength in the Details, a podcast that goes beyond the classic debate on reps, sets, and exercise programming, and focuses on aligning what matters most in your training, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. I'm your host, Dr. Anaja Newsom, founder of Optimize Strength. I'm a PhD with a focus in the exercise and health sciences, a coach, and weightlifting athlete. With more than a decade of professional experience in sport and fitness, I truly believe that the impact of mental skills, motivation, and self-efficacy are often overlooked and underappreciated in exercise behavior change, sport performance preparation, and everyday coaching practices. You deserve to feel strong in the gym and beyond. And on this podcast, we dive in to the mental aspects of exercise, training, and sport performance. So join me as I invite industry experts, elite athletes, and coaches, and researchers to a conversation about the gritty details. Welcome back to another episode of Strength in the Details. I am your host, Dr. Anaja Newsom, and today's episode is a solo run. I wanted to jump on here today, and this episode is all about programming. Um, I wanted to give you my thoughts and my philosophy on the most important parts of programming, the most important aspects of programming. Listen, when I started this podcast, my goal was to explore and educate listeners on what I felt were important aspects of training and sports performance that are not often prioritized when it comes to improving fitness and competition outcomes. My mission with this podcast was ultimately to redirect the attention away from the debate on reps and sets, what's right and wrong with this programming style or that programming style, and really get down to the nitty gritty on the things that athletes could control um, beyond typical reps and sets of an exercise program. In fact, that's the tagline, beyond the reps, which insinuates that I aim to teach people how to dig deeper and get curious about all of the other inputs that influence training. And if you've followed along for long enough, we often talk about mindset and motivation and nutrition, um, leadership, coaching leadership, team leadership, team dynamics, and decision-making. And I think all of those topics are so important. But Alas, here we are because one of the most impressing, uh, the most pressing questions that I get in Q&A boxes on social media are along this general conversation with athletes centered on programming. So now in full disclosure, I can nerd out with the best of them. I love getting creative with programming and testing out different hypotheses to build strength. My background is in exercise physiology. And so I love to understand how a particular style of programming or a rep scheme or a macro or mesocycle really impacts performance. I love reading about sports science, the literature um, that comes out. Um, and I also love developing programming from scratch. It's kind of like an art um, form and then monitoring athletes as they progress. But there are some basic principles of exercise programming that I think generally matter. And then beyond that, I think there's so much nuance that gets overlooked. And so I really want to touch on the nuance in exercise programming and really hone in on what I believe 
should be the focus of any program or any athlete who's seeking to kind of get the very best out of their programming. So I want to start this episode with a short story. Um, It's kind of the story that lit my fire for this episode, if you will. I had an athlete a few years ago that came to me and wanted programming. She's known um, kind of in the in the weightlifting community as being like this serial program hopper. I think she has some background in like field hockey um, and powerlifting. And when she jumped into my DM shortly after I launched Optimize Strength, I already knew what the deal was. Uh, She was looking for this perfect program and her goal is to be this elite level weightlifter. And really someone who's very new to weightlifting and training um, typically isn't going to see that level of of change or progression um, overnight. So fast forward to more recently, I had a similar conversation with a friend and colleague of mine in the coaching space about programming and specifically for strength athletes, the nuance that exists um, in strength and conditioning and exercise programming and how oftentimes we see kind of this, this impatience with letting things play out in an exercise programming and, you know, kind of looking for the next biggest, best fad in exercise programming. Um, So first, I want to break down a few of the basic principles of exercise programming, and then we'll talk about my perspective on some of the pitfalls that I see athletes and sometimes even coaches fall into. So grab your protein shake and let's drop in for this ride. Let's start with some of the basics of exercise prescription. From a fundamental standpoint, any trained and educated coach has heard of the FIT principle. The FIT principle stands for frequency, intensity, time, and type of exercise or modality. And those four elements are at the foundation of how we manipulate and adjust a program. As your training frequency goes up, the amount of time for each session might decrease. As the intensity increases, the amount of weight you're moving or the load or the percentage might decrease. Uh, Similarly, those that train less frequently and has more rest in between sets and and exercise training sessions might increase their training volume in any given session. So those are kind of the basics. And it's important for athletes to understand and recognize from a fatigue and load management standpoint, because If we don't monitor those things correctly, you can quickly end up moving from overreaching and exercise programming um, or training into overtraining, and then we experience burnout and injury. So how do you establish a starting point for the FIT principle? Well, much, much of it is kind of done in the assessment of the athlete and athlete monitoring. And I recommend that everyone Um, has some sort of assessment that they do when an athlete comes to them. Um, An athlete's current training status and their past experiences are also important. Uh, Given a sport like weightlifting, which is highly technical, there is a great deal of skill building that must occur, which impacts the amount of time in each session, especially for beginners. Um, Typically, we classify, classify athletes as beginner, intermediate, and advance based on their training or sport age. And that gives us 
a recommendation for the amount of training sessions per week or maybe the intensity in which they should begin training, um, even the level of cognitive development and adaptation that's needed. And so all of those things are important. And I think that athletes need to understand that the FIT principle is also used to guide their training priorities. So this brings us to considering like a season's approach to exercise programming and sport performance. Um, sports at all levels observe a season, if you will. But the challenge at recreational or amateur levels, the sports season is often overlooked. Um, think about college, college football athletes that are not practicing and competing 12 months out of the year. There's general, generally speaking an off-season, a preseason, and an in-season approach to sport preparation. And each of those seasons are important. Each of those seasons look differently. And each of those seasons have different priorities. Um, and so I can speak for weightlifting when I say it feels like an all year around sport. And our athletes could probably benefit from uh, a more unified sports season, both at the national and international level. It would help athletes plan their mesocycle and incorporate more active rest and recovery. But in the sport of weightlifting, you typically have, you know, local level events and semi-national level events happening all year round. And it's easy for an athlete to feel like if they're not actively training and working towards peak performance and competition that they're falling behind. Um, and so a season's approach is really important even within the FIT principle model that we're giving and prescribing active um, and purposeful rest for longer than a day. I'm not talking a day or a weekend or even a week. I'm talking several weeks of um, either cross-training or active recovery um, to facilitate a more well-rounded athlete. The second consideration for what actually matters in exercise programming is what I refer to as the three Ps, preference, personal goals, and past experiences. I believe in science-supported decision-making when it comes to programming. And I also believe that an athlete's personal preference is important in that equation. The best evidence-driven program says that an athlete who is unhappy will not adhere to the program. So if you have this evidence-based program that you think is phenomenal, but the athlete is not actually adhering to it, then there's kind of no point. So a happy athlete is a successful athlete. So an athlete's preference as supported by science is what I feel matters in programming. Now, a caveat to that is that oftentimes as an athlete, we tend to like the things that we're good at, which is why good coaching and, and direct coaching feedback is so important. We are less likely to prefer the things we're not good at but those may be the things that are limiting our actual progress. So when I design programming, I tend to focus on technique building and focus on repetition, but I also hone in on movements that I know an athlete likes. It improves their motivation and gives them something to look forward to in a program. Um, and beyond that, it is important to consider personal athletic goals of the individual and timing of competition. So that is the idea behind the optimized strength framework that I 
that I typically program from, it's about aligning their personal goals, their personal lifestyle, the things that they enjoy that is going to increase motivation and adherence, along with the evidence that is available to help maximize their performance outcomes. Because not everyone is going to come into your gym looking to compete in a sport. And not everyone is there for weight loss. And not everyone is there to dedicate two, three hours every training session in the gym. Others, Other people can't necessarily dedicate that amount of time or that may not be their goals. And it doesn't mean that the programming is going to be less impactful. It just needs to be different with different priorities. The other topic that I might throw into kind of this introduction or foundational piece for this episode is this idea of movement patterns. Um, the importance of programming exercises that cover a variety of movement patterns. For simplicity's sake, we'll call them squat, hinge, upper body push, upper body pull, and rotation. Now, I know that we could debate all day about the many variations of this concept, but the long and short of it all is that athletic people should learn to move in many different directions and all planes of motion. So forward and back, side to side, up and down, we need to be able to let um, to maximize the leverage points of all of those different joints and joint actions. Now, once you nail down the basics, there are so many other considerations that a coach or an exercise professional might prioritize. And as a coach, I'll share kind of my thoughts on a few that I think are most important. And I think they get lost in translation um, when we're communicating or writing these things to athletes. So hopefully athletes, if you're listening um, to this and you want to take something in from this, understand that this is just my, my perspective, but I think that it goes beyond the actual exercise selection and more so how we reflect and evaluate the purpose of that exercise. So first, let's start with program adherence. It takes a really long time to adapt and see the results of a training program. It doesn't matter how well designed that program is. One of the common elements of success is time. Time and effort, repetition, doing the same thing over and over and over again, which means that an athlete has to have patience. The reason you see so many repetitive movements in a program, especially the programs that I write, is because in order to improve positional strength or functional strength or your mobility or your general fitness, you have to practice. I'm a huge proponent of concurrent training, which I'll talk about in another episode, but one of the primary training principles is the principle of specificity, which means an athlete must incorporate specific tasks unique to the intended sport using progressive and systematic overload. This progression is designed to obtain neuromuscular and metabolic adaptations in training. And these things take time. On average, for example, it takes about eight to 12 weeks to realize increases in strength. So you have to do a a program and we're talking average. Everyone deviates from that average in one way or the other. Eight to 12 weeks. This initial increase is 
usually due to neurological adaptations and neurological changes and are not necessarily related to any change in muscle size. So if your goal is um, increasing muscle size, you're not, this isn't, you're not going to see that in eight to 12 weeks, right? If you're a novice, maybe a little bit, but if you have, have any sort of longevity in the sport, you're going to have to work at something for a little bit longer to see any, um, musculoskeletal changes, um, or function beyond that. It typically takes 12 to 20 weeks to see any significant changes in muscle mass. Added on to that, it takes even longer, usually about 90, um, 90 days to 180 days to see any significant, profound changes in things like body composition. Um, and so one of the biggest frustrations that I see as a coach and as an educator who coaches uh, other coaches is this lack of patience and desire to adhere to a program as written for any substantial amount of time. This is the only way that you can determine if something is actually going to work. Oftentimes I'll come across athletes who are constantly changing their priority in a program or constantly changing their technique or movement and they're not giving it a, an, enough time to really determine if that's going to be the best technique change or the best position change or the best movement pattern change to solicit long-term effects or results. Um, this is particularly troubling when you are trying to make a technique change or troubleshoot a technique issue. If you change something in a movement pattern, regardless of how small of a change, it's going to take time, usually at a decreased prescribed weight, to make a determination on if it's working. And I say all of this to say that uh, program adherence is my number one priority when coaching or programming. We will never know if something is working if an athlete doesn't stick to it. Um, if you're looking at general population fitness, about 50% of new exercisers will drop out of a, of a program or stop a program in the first three months. That's less than 90 days, which means that they're not going to stick around long enough to see any significant changes in their long-term goals or plans. And so in those, in those moments, you really have to determine how you can, one, prioritize the process over progress, uh, long-term progress or long-term outcomes or products. And then the second thing is really focusing on getting an athlete to understand the small incremental changes that they are making. Um, you know, I want to say that if you're an intermediate or an advanced athlete, changing a technique uh, issue or looking for a one kilo PR could mean months to years of training to realize outcomes. So I just wanted to put that in, into perspective. It's all highly individualized and based on a lot of unique factors, but at the end of the day, patience is the name of the game. The other consideration that I kind of want to bring up here are training metrics. When I originally posted about this episode, um, one of the questions I received was, I haven't been able to hit my one rep max in about six months. I train uh, with percentages based on my one rep max, but haven't been able to hit more than 90% consistently. Am I doing something wrong? That was the question. Um, I'm paraphrasing there. 
The short answer is no. If your one rep max is a true one repetition max, your ability to exert maximum force on an object from rest, well, there are a lot of factors that contribute to that on any given day. You will not likely hit that number at the drop of a dime. One rep max as a testing protocol has very good test retest reliability um, in the literature. So generally speaking, it is a good um, baseline test for athletes uh, who are looking to do resistance training programs. However, in a non-laboratory controlled setting, it may not hold up as well if, if it's your only means of measuring performance improvements over time. We know that the number of reps that an athlete can perform at a given percentage of their one rep max will vary. Body, body composition, body size, all of those things impact someone's ability to, to consistently uh, perform repetitions at heavier loads. And there are a lot of, lot of individual differences that account for some of the discrepancies in work capacity. So my ability to perform five sets of five at 60% of my one rep max versus five sets of five at 75% of my one rep max versus five sets of five Good goodness, if you're writing this, 80% of my one rep max, um, there are a lot of different things that go into someone's ability to handle that type of work capacity, fatigue, soreness, psychological factors like motivation and effort will all impact someone's ability to um, perform a one rep max. Um, and there are, very, there are a variety of factors that contribute to an individual's one rep max at a given time, and then their ability to hit that same digit on a different date. So I truly believe that athletes put too much stock in the one rep max when there are so many other really important training metrics to consider. Two that I find that are super important that I'll talk about here are heart rate recovery and total work capacity. So I look at these things when I'm programming for my own athletes and when I'm determining or evaluating progress in a, within a training cycle, or even if I'm looking at you know, the need to deload or maybe perhaps why a plateau has happened. Um, these are two things that I really look at. I look at heart rate recovery. Um, heart rate recovery is described as your heart's ability to return to normal after a given exercise session. That's that's um, broadly how it's de defined. But I like heart rate recovery because it can be used in strength-based workouts or within more aerobic or anaerobic-based workouts. When considering heart rate recovery, you're measuring the time that it takes to lower your heart rate. This is a sign of your body's ability to regulate and meet the demand for oxygenated blood at the working muscles. And as a coach, I like to measure how well an athlete is recovering at the end of a training session, but also in between prescribed sets. So if you take a heavy set of back squats at, you know, 80% and then you sit down and you're totally wiped out for five minutes, then that's a sign of overall fitness. If you jog a mile and you're doing, um, you know, kind of sub-maximal zone two, zone three work, and it takes you two minutes to recover and then you're ready to go for another mile, that's a sign of fitness. And if you're looking at that heart rate recovery 
um, as a result of performance over time, it is a really good indication of your progress in that particular modality. Heart rate recovery has been shown to be reliable, um, a reliable indicator in of training status in athletes who are both highly trained. So you're elite competitive athletes with a lot of experience, but it's also very reliable in the untrained athlete, which I think is really important if we're working with beginners, general population, or people that are pursuing sport for the first time. Um, and heart rate recovery is actually more reliable at sub-maximal intensities. Um, it's less reliable if you're performing kind of a, a maximum effort or a one rep max. So why should this matter? The more efficient you are at recovering more frequently, the faster that you can put your foot back on the gas, so to speak, to give the next required effort. And so if I'm looking at Olympic weightlifting athletes, I, you know, if you're listening to this and you've ever gotten your two minute clock stolen in a competition, you're following yourself at 90% plus thresholds. Your ability to regulate and, and down or down regulate your heart rate and recover quickly in between that effort is really important. That's why this should matter to you. Better heart rate recovery is a is also a predictor of decreased premature mortality, especially in patients with like cardiovascular or heart disease. But it's overall a general, generally good training metric to understand progress over time. The other important training metric is total work capacity your ability to do more work in a given amount of time. And this may look different for different athletes, but physiological adaptations to a program should increase your ability to do more work. Your ability to handle higher volume over time is a sign of work capacity. Work capacity is comprised of your uh, increased peak oxygen consumption, providing more oxygen to the working muscles, increased intensity and duration during any given exercise or training session, and peak workload. All of those things are significant signs of improved performance. So it's also really, and it's also kind of related to your physiological or your psychological functioning and athlete satisfaction. If you can handle more work capacity, your perceived level of exertion is lower, which means that you're more likely to feel good about the exercise training session that you've just experienced. So I think that it's important for us to maybe look at and consider um, heart rate recovery or total work capacity as training metrics um, in addition to the one rep max. I'm not negating the importance of a one rep max and objectively getting stronger, uh, but I think that sometimes when we only focus on the one rep max and we don't consistently progress and increase that digit, it can lead to athlete dissatisfaction or burnout or fatigue or just general frustration with what is perceived as a lack of progress. I'll add to that the other training metric uh, that I really enjoy when I get the opportunity to get into more of a training facility um, that has specialized equipment is velocity-based training. Uh, this measurement traditionally requires specialized equipment that records speed of movement. 
through any given range of motion. You might see it on a back squat or front squat or a deadlift or any type of Olympic movement because the idea is maximum output. For athletes that are resisting resistance training for maximum power output, efficient movement becomes more important. How quickly and powerfully can you move the barbell from the, its starting position through a, a given range of motion? And you can use this this feedback as a gauge for monitoring training response and adaptations. Um, if you don't have specialized equipment, you can use the coach's eye to look at speed. And I think also there are a couple of uh, mobile apps or iPad apps that you can use that measures speed. It may not be as reliable or accurate, but I believe that any tool that is developed that can aid in measuring progress is uh, pretty cool to look at. Um, it's it's an alternative method of prescribing intensities when an athlete is nearing their one rep max. That de that velocity decreases, and you can you can really see as they approach ninety percent, ninety five percent, and one hundred percent. You can kind of look at the changes in velocity as a metric for training improvement. Does that velocity decrease? Does it stay the same? Are they able to keep the same speed as the weight and the percentages are going up? Um, the other thing that I really like about velocity-based training um, is that you may also see decreases in speed with things like fatigue or psychological burnout or demotivation. And these things can help us reduce the likelihood of injury. Um, and I think that that's also a really cool thing to, to look at and consider as a training metric. The bottom line is that there is no way, single way. There's no single way. There's no one way to measure progress. And I think we have to have multiple ways. Exercise programming matters less if you do not have a toolbox of approaches to determine its success. And Included in that is multiple ways of evaluating performance. We should be looking at a number of training metrics, such as consistency at submaximal loads and intensity, easy zone to aerobic conditioning. Um, heart rate variability is one that I think is really um, important as well. We can use RPE or rating of perceived exertion. All of these are super important. So yes, exercise programming does matter. It really does matter, but what matters more is your adherence to a program for the long term and tools that coaches and athletes can use to help sticking with something long enough without overthinking, without bailing on the plan, without scrutinizing every single rep. Just do the work and enjoy the process, truly giving it a, a chance to work. And if it, if it works, um, being able to objectively measure the outcomes in a variety of ways that is not just one objective measure. Um, we all want to improve strength. We want to run faster, but progress comes in different forms and it comes in different shapes and sizes. And I hope this helps you look at your progress through different lenses and really evaluate not just the number on the bar or the reps and the sets that you're performing, but the quality of those reps and sets and the quality of that programming over a long period of time. Until next time, my friends.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Before you sign off, if this episode was helpful for you, I'd love to hear from you. Be sure to take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review, and then share with your other strong friends. If you're looking for more podcast episodes or content on fitness, nutrition, sport performance, or if you just want to connect with me for coaching, you can head on over to my website, optimizestrength.co, or follow me on Instagram at PhD. I'd love to hear from this community. If there are topics you want to hear about or guests you'd like to hear from, drop me a note. Until next time, may your squats be strong and your lifts be big. Here's to going beyond the reps and getting to the strength in the details.